0: Acts chapter 4 tonight, we continue to make our way through this book of the Acts of the Apostles. It's really the Acts of God and God working through them. And that's really the transition that's taking place, you see. They have walked with Christ for three and a half years. He's no longer here, but He said, I will come unto you. And so Christ lives in us. And now they're learning to minister without Christ physically present, but Christ working in them and through them through the power of the Holy Spirit. And what we find here is a church in action. That's kind of our focus. As a reminder, in our text here tonight, we are likely only two to three months away from the events of the crucifixion. This is still very fresh in Jerusalem. It's still a big deal. There's still a lot of chatter, you can imagine, of all the rumors of this man rising again. And the religious leaders in Jerusalem had hoped that by Jesus being off of the scene, it would have put an end to this idea that Jesus was the Messiah. How can He be the Messiah if He's dead, was their thinking. On Pentecost, 50 days from the Passover, the followers of Christ were all filled with the Spirit. Christ was preached and 3,000 souls were saved. In chapter 3, Peter and John, through the power of God and faith in Christ, they healed the crippled beggar who had been laid daily at the gate beautiful. And depending on how one reads Acts 4.4, 4, another two to 5,000 were saved. What was 120 in Acts chapter 1 is now up to five to 8,000. They thought they had stopped this movement. Well, the council in Jerusalem can see, well, we've got a problem on our hands. They thought they had taken out the Holy One of Israel and ended this movement, but instead it has now grown exponentially in a very short period of time. Therefore, when there was that stir at the temple, when this man was healed, you can imagine why the Sadducees came running in to stop them. Peter is preaching the resurrection. And they, they run in and they, they stop them. They were concerned the Romans are going to come in and they're going to shut this thing down. And that was their corrupt way of life. That was their money-making They took advantage of people at the temple. They're still charlatans today. They were also concerned doctrinally, of course, because the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They're now concerned this movement of the followers of Jesus is increasing. It's building in momentum. And for the reasons that I cited with the Romans coming in, the doctrine they were teaching, they arrest Peter and John. And after the next day, when they are getting ready to release them, they appear before the council, and the council says, don't you speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Doesn't it feel like we're awful close to that in America? And we already know some institutions are. Verse 21 shows us how they wanted to do more than just threaten them. They wanted to punish them further physically, but they couldn't because there was no denying the miracle that had taken place and everybody was talking about it and they were glorifying God. I love what the missionary said this morning about even the lost people were saying, there's something about that place through that storm. What a blessing when the lost can see something's up there. Upon being let go, we saw they returned to their church. (laughs) I love that. The Bible says they went to their own company. and While gathered together, they prayed together to God in one accord. And you'll remember, I hope, we talked about how they recognized God as their master in their prayer, how they were His humble servants. They recognized God as the Almighty Creator and therefore who can handle anything. They recognized the Scripture's guiding role in prayer, which helped them to understand the times that they were living in. They remembered what Jesus had suffered and endured to help them persevere. They remembered how God is sovereign, and they desired to honor and glorify God through their trials. We took note of how they did not ask for an end of their trials. They did not ask for an end of persecution. Often we pray for the removal. I I don't think we're necessarily wrong to pray For removal. But we also must understand that perhaps our first instinct should be, God help me to glorify you through this trial. Then we concluded last time with how God gave them exactly what they asked for. In verse 29, they prayed, Grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. And then in verse 31, we saw how they were all filled with the Holy Ghost And they spake the word of God with boldness. Exactly what they prayed for. And so there's a connection between being filled with the Holy Ghost and speaking God's word with boldness. Do you see that? The two go hand in hand. And they have to go together because they're both in the the Godhead. The word, Jesus Christ the spirit and of course God make up our holy trinity what we we say second samuel 23:2 the spirit of the lord spake by me and his word was in my tongue a connection ephesians 6:17 the sword of the spirit which is the word of god so if you want to be spirit filled and i would hope that's your desire then you must be in the Word of God. And if you are faithfully in the Word of God, it will help you to be Spirit-filled. Amen. And if we want to be effective, then we must be Spirit-filled believers. Zechariah 4.6, Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Well, let's continue tonight. Let's read verses 32. Um, we've got a problem here. I wrote 32 through 27. <laughs> so... I'm not sure how we're going to pull that off yet. How about we just start reading somewhere? Well, it would help if I'd get in the right chapter. (laughs) This is what happened when I don't preach for a while. Okay, 32 through 37. This would make a lot more sense. So let's try that. (laughs) And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold, laid them down at the apostles' feet, And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Amen. So the last two weeks in this series, it's been on the theme of unity. I've mentioned before how I could never overstate the importance of unity within a body of believers. And I can say this because obviously God feels the same way. And so tonight, one more time, we'll be talking about unity. In chapter 1, they continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. In the beginning of chapter 2, they were all filled Or excuse me, they were all with one accord in one place when they were filled with the Holy Ghost. At the end of chapter 2, they were continuing daily with one accord in the temple. And in this chapter, we've already seen how they prayed together in one accord. And now we see yet again in verse 32 how they were unified. They were of one heart, one soul. They had all things common. And we're going to see this one more time in chapter 5, this idea of being of one accord. Why is this highlighted five times already in four chapters? It's because God wants us to realize how important unity is. God knows we need to hear it more than once. And I know I need to keep preaching this because it still isn't sinking in with everyone. And so here we are again, by God's design. This isn't my soapbox, it's in the text, so get over it. And so I thought, well, maybe I should try a different approach. So how about we talk about what unity in a church is not? Maybe this will resonate just a little bit better. Unity is not placing yourself above others. Unity isn't about getting your way. Unity isn't sowing discord among the brethren. Unity isn't stirring up strife. Unity isn't holding a grudge. Unity isn't gossiping. Unity is not withholding information from leadership that has upset you. And then I find out about it as you're walking away. Unity isn't talking negatively with members in private about decisions already voted on and passed in the church. For example, the land is purchased. Get over it. (laughs) Unity is not being critical based upon your last church. I'm not against ideas. Unity isn't finding excuses to be absent from church and ministry events. Unity is not sitting in the foyer during the services and visiting with other people during the preaching. And by the way, in all seriousness, that was a serious point, but in all seriousness, That is intended for people who need to excuse themselves from in here to go out there. In particular, mothers who might have a little one and don't want to be a disruption in the service. And so they want to go out in the foyer just to find a bunch of people out there talking and fellowshipping. You say, how do you know people are out there? Because other people tell me they're (laughs) gossiping. (laughs) Unity is not secretly being critical of the leadership here without bringing it up to the leadership. Unity is not refusing to go to the one who you have an issue against. Unity is not going to someone else when your problem is not with them. Unity is not complaining about God's blessings. You say, what in the world? For example, God has blessed us with this facility. We're doing the best we can. I know parking's limited. I know classrooms are small. And I know sometimes that seat which you think is yours is taken. But why complain about God's blessings? If you only knew the number of churches that wish they had that problem, then perhaps you would rejoice and be thankful for God's blessings instead of complaining about it. Unity is not complaining when the pastor follows the word of God. Well, I tell you what, he should have never kept the doors open during COVID. What verse do you have to support that criticism? Love your neighbor. I heard that. (laughs) Well, I don't like the way he handled that situation. Was a pattern followed that is giving in the Word of God or not? Unity is not justifying your obstinance or backsliding by claiming God has given you peace about it. Unless you have book, chapter, verse, then God did not give you peace about not being unified. Now, I could keep listing things. And I'm kind of enjoying that. But finally, I'll say this. Unity is not getting offended when the pastor preaches on what unity is not. (laughs) As my dad always told us growing up, you can get over it or die mad one. I never would have thought as a kid that would be a staple of ministry. Appreciate it, Dad. Now, here's the thought for you as we consider unity in a church. Paul wrote to the Romans, the Corinthians, the churches plural in Galatia, the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, and the Thessalonians. And if I were to ask you tonight which one of those churches had the greatest problems, then if you've studied the issue, then you know it was the Corinthians. And and there was one defining mark brought up in the Corinthian church amongst all their issues. This one to me just jumps out and it was their disunity. After Paul writes his greeting, which he did customarily, he gets right to the heart of the matter by saying in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10-13, through Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of those of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? 1 Corinthians 3, verses 3 and 4. For ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? First Corinthians 4, 6. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that ye might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that none of you be puffed up one against another. First Corinthians 6, verses 5 through 7. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers? Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because you go to the law with one another. You're going to judge Judy. Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? 1 Corinthians 10.10 Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. 1 Corinthians 11.18 For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. 1 Corinthians 12.25 That there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. The Corinthian church had a lot of issues. And, and at the, the top of that, the, I would believe the root problem was they were divided. And t- to combat their disunity, Paul has to constantly mention their need to be unified. I already cited 1 Corinthians 1.10 where Paul told them, speak the same thing, be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And then he just keeps hammering this need to be unified several times, because he keeps telling them over and over, look, we are one. Amen. 1 Corinthians 6.17 But he that is joined unto the Lord is one Spirit. 1 Corinthians 8.6 But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by Him. 1 Corinthians 10, 17, For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. In chapter 12 alone, he writes six times of the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God. He writes of one Spirit four times. He writes of one body six times. Sixteen times in one chapter. Four times in chapter 3, Paul calls the Corinthians carnal. And so we see here a clear contrast between this church in Jerusalem and this church in Corinth. In Jerusalem, they were unified. They were spirit-filled. They experienced God working mightily in them, through them. Thousands were being reached with the gospel. While in Corinth, they were divided because of their carnality. What's at the heart of division? It's being carnal. They lacked the power of God. They needed to be upbraided for their disunity and sin. What kind of church do we want to be? I, for one, want to experience God. I want God to shake this place. I want to see God work mightily in us and through us. I want to see thousands reached with the gospel in our area. But hear me well, this will never happen until there is unity. So look at the beginning of verse 32 again in our text. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Imagine a multitude, five to 8,000 people being so unified that they appeared as one. For those who have ever served in the military, you can understand this principle. You've seen it. I don't know what's happening today with all the transgender politics, but it used to be that when a man showed up at basic training, they all got the same haircut. They all got the same uniform. They all got the same uh, boots. They all got the same hat. They all got the same coat. They, they all lived in the same place. They all shared the same bathroom, for crying out loud. Amen. They were one. What was happening? They were taking people from all over this country, from different cultures, different pockets of America, and maybe even the world, and they were bringing them and making them into one person. And we see here in our text that it is entirely possible For a large number of believers to be unified. Notice that they were one in their heart and soul. Now what's important about this, this is the two areas that Christ will deal with when you are born again. He will save your soul and He will give you a new heart. Boy, are you suggesting that if there's this unity, somebody may not have a new heart or have their soul saved? Well, no, but God is. We, we have all this denominational nonsense today. It's a mess out there. And, and the fact is, not all are of the same heart and soul. Those in Christ will think the same about Christ. What are you saying, preacher? Are you saying the JWs aren't in Christ? That's exactly what I'm saying. Are you saying the Mormons are not really Christian? That's exactly what I'm saying. One heart, one soul, Jesus says, that's what I'll change. I'm not saying we're going to dot our eyes and cross every T the same way. But I am saying there are some fundamental doctrines that those in Christ are going to say, yes, that is unmovable. Those in Christ will think about God's word the same. This will be the final authority. We won't need a second testament of Christ. We won't need a new world translation. We won't need the catechisms of the Catholic Church. Listen, believe it or not, I'm not being ugly. I'm just being your pastor. We will not need those things. We will understand that this is God's holy word, that it is authoritative and that it is right for all things in faith and practice. Those in Christ who have a new heart and a new soul They will think the same about God's church. Amen. What are you saying? I'm saying this. It's not going to be, oh, I can just worship God anywhere. Oh, no, no. Those in Christ will realize I need to be in church. Now, I'm not going there tonight. I'll just stop with all that. But I just want to tell you, not all churches are equal. Maybe that's enough said. Just for grins, amen. I doubt that all these believers had time to be taught all things whatsoever the Lord had commanded them. Man, I'm starting to just feel feisty tonight. I doubt that they sat down and walked them through the ABCs of Christian growth. And yet, they had their act together. makes me wonder how many are really lost within the church. Now to be clear, I'm all for discipleship. It's mandated. But if Christ has saved your soul, then you should not have to be hounded to death to be in church. If you hunger and thirst after righteousness, you will do what's right. Now... Those who have left here, I have gone after. But at some point, you have to wonder, is it time to conclude they were never of us? 1 John 2.19 They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have no doubt continued with us but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Now it hurts, but that's reality. And if you ever just want to smack in the face, read 1 John. Unfortunately, I now have to deal with one who wept at this altar to be saved and that I baptized, but is now out there running down our church. Doesn't it feel good to be run down by those that you dropped everything to go see them at the hospital in the middle of the night in their moment of crisis, and that you worked with them for months to try to help them? Doesn't it feel good to to pray with somebody that God would, would do a great work in their life, and then to see that come to pass, and then just have them leave and accuse you of being a racist? Isn't that a blessing? No, of course not. But it's far less than our Lord endured. He was reviled and he reviled not again. And I'm not suggesting that all who have left here are not saved, but having not joined with another church, then I assume the dog has now returned to its vomit and the pig to its mire. Well, here in verse 32, we see the whole multitude was of one heart and one soul. And look at the result of their unity in verse 33 we see that with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Just in case you're wondering, if you're following closely here in the text, I won't have time to adequately cover it tonight, so I'm going to come back to the end of verse 32 and then tie that in next time with verses 34 and 35. So if you're wondering why I skipped that, that's why. For those who are not following along, just tune that out and focus right back. We keep seeing in this book how their unity led to God working mightily among them. And I believe that's what we're meant to pick up on. In chapter 1, when they were of one accord, God gave them wisdom in handling church affairs. They had a leadership decision that they needed to make. In chapter 2, when they were in one accord, they were filled with the Spirit and spoken tongues. And Peter, who had previously denied the Lord, preached Christ with great power. Three thousand were saved and baptized. At the end of chapter 2, when they were in one accord, they were given favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Earlier in chapter 4, we saw how they prayed in one accord, and God shook the place. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. And now we see their unity led to great power in preaching the resurrection of Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Now don't forget, the council had just threatened them. Don't speak or teach In the name of Jesus. And their main concern in saying that was because we don't like you running around talking about the resurrection. They prayed for boldness here. And look at what they are preaching. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Whoop! They are not deterred one bit by the power of the council. Their version of Supreme Court. They know that their lives are at risk. Listen, we don't understand in America today exactly what they were going through. If you got kicked out of the synagogue, buddy, that was about it for you. We'll we'll get into that next week on why they were selling things. But but, but listen, that was it. You You usually had no way of life. Everything was controlled by this group. And they know their lives are at stake. But greater was He that was in them than he that is in the world. They had received power and they were being moved by a power that was greater than them. The Holy Spirit of God. Acts 20, 24, Paul wrote, But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Philippians 1, verses 20 and 21, According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Colossians 1, 28 and 29, Whom we preach, warning every man, and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, Whereunto I also labor, striving according to His working, which worketh in me mightily. Those who are Spirit-filled have God's power, working in them mightily. Being Spirit-filled causes us to witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that what Jesus said the Spirit will do? He will testify of me. And we see that God also rewarded them with great grace. God is so gracious. He filled them with His Spirit. But I believe this also means God gave them favor with everybody in Jerusalem. There was something different about this movement that people were recognizing. I hope you can see why I repeatedly say we cannot overemphasize the importance of unity within a body of believers. Just look at the results so far in this book. Jesus looked at 12 men and said, follow me. And now, We're less than four years. There are 8,000 probably. Isn't that amazing? And who knows who's up there in Galilee? I want to remind you as I close what Christ prayed for. Remember that prayer in John 17? One of the greatest chapters in all the Bible. I know it's all great. Get off my back. John 17, verses 20 through 23, Jesus said, Neither pray I for these alone, speaking of the twelve, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. That's us. Jesus there in John 17, in these verses, He's praying for you and I. Today. That, listen to what He prays for that they all may be one. As Thou, Father, art in Me, and I in Thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that Thou hast sent Me. And the glory which Thou gavest Me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and Thou in Me, That they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Isn't that amazing? Four times, four times, our Lord prayed, I want them to be one. Do you think that it's important to our Lord? Now, why did Jesus find that so important to pray for? He, he says it in his, in his prayer. Get this now. Why is this so important? That the world may know that Thou hast sent me and hast loved them as Thou hast loved me. Are you getting that? Jesus said, I want them to be unified. One heart, one soul, one spirit. Because it is our unity which helps the world to know that God sent Christ. That's amazing. So, what does that mean? It obviously means when a church is not unified, it's not showing the world a whole bunch of nothing. Except that all this is a joke. It is our unity which lets the world know God loves us. That's what Jesus said. And it is our unity which shows God loves us. If if you love, if you don't have love for the brethren genre, you're not in. Brooks Version, 2022. I believe unity is more important than I could ever communicate. Therefore, if we want to be a church in action who is filled with the Spirit, experiencing God working mightily through us and in us, we have to strive for unity. You see, unity does not come naturally. Just get married. You know what this means? It means we have to die to ourself. We have to allow God to be all and in all. That means this is not my church, this is God's church. This means it is not Ken's choir, it is God's choir. And I could keep going with all the ministries. He is all and in all. This means we put aside the petty nonsense. This means we agree with God and His Word. And folks, I believe there's no telling what God will do with a church that is unified around His Word and the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me, please?